Hi everyone, this podcast is brought to you by the Fancy Animation Research Network. If you like what you hear and want to support the show even further, the best thing you can do for us right now is to leave us a short review and a star rating on the iTunes store. It's very easy and takes no time at all. More ratings increases our visibility and gives us a better chance of reaching a wider audience. For more information about the network, visit fantasy-animation.org, where you can comment on our blog posts, have a route around our podcasts, and join the Fantasy Animation mailing list. But for now, we hope you enjoy the show. That was the majestic score there from Bern Herman's epic music, and you are listening to the Fantasy Animation Podcast with myself, Alex Sargent. And myself, Christopher Holliday. Yourself and myself, yes. indeed. Welcome, everyone. Today, we are discussing the Ray Harryhausen classic, Jason and the Argonauts, um, a very key seminal movie in the history of both fantasy animation, um, so we are keen to talk about and unpick its various intersections between its fantasy storyline and its animation subject. Chris, uh, this is my pick for this week. You haven't seen it before until about two hours ago. Yes, so I must I must confess that um, I am sort of torn between my identity as an, as an animation scholar and also um, living with an identity of somebody who hasn't seen uh, a large proportion of apparently all movies. Of- In- and uh, listeners, I would stress all movies. This is hopefully going to become a running game on this yes. podcast. So, yes, Jason and the Argonauts was, uh, as you say, your um, your pick. But at the same time, it feels like a, a movie that's very much in, in my wheelhouse. Uh, and certainly any kind of animation um, studies scholar worth their salt will have heard from uh, heard of, of Harryhausen, Ray Harryhausen. Um, the film, of course, obviously is directed by uh, Don Chaffee, but I noticed that Harryhausen is, is credited as both associate producer uh, and, quote, creator of visual effects. Um, so hopefully when we're kind of talking and, and kind of going through the film, I can pick out some, some moments that are, I think, really important to the um, history of animation, history of particularly stop motion animation, um, looking at Harryhausen's um, uh, particular dynamation uh, process, so his his way of working within with the stop motion medium. So certainly, it's a if it's a seminal text for fantasy scholars, it is equally so for animation scholars too. And and just before I sort of introduce the movie to listeners, just as a sentence, what did you reckon of it? I thought it was. It was very um, tanned and sweaty. Sure, um, as I am actually in this quite hot room on, in, on, a, yes. on a summer uh, morning because we record these podcasts way in advance. So hopefully you are listening to this and it's chilly and cold and raining and snowing and all the things that British winter yeah. can bring. Yeah. And uh, at the just... moment I'm in my three-quarter length shorts and everything's a bit damp, a bit like this film. Yes, so it's, I mean, I, I, I did enjoy it. The... Um, Animated sequences are very clearly, it's very much a film of visual effects and certainly the, the status of the stop motion effects is folded into the narrative so that these, these sequences become moments of fantasy for us but also for the characters on screen. Um, I noticed that the, yeah, the animated sequences or the stop motion moments are very clearly bracketed within the film so there are about four or five 
sequences that I can we can kind of go to specifically and look at uh, as moments where we we see we see animation. Having said that, there are all kinds of, of visual effects throughout the film. It is very much uh, a film of of its time in terms of some of the things that we see. So back projection, we see matte paintings and, and kind of fake back backgrounds, uh, a series of superimpositions, um, and also it's dubbed, it's dubbing. And so I think that the, yeah, there are many effects within the film, some of which are invisible or meant to be read as invisible, whereas the animated effects are certainly there to be seen. These are moments that we, we kind of stop and stare at and, and kind of take in, in as part of the spectacle. I guess it brings me to a question before we haven't started. This is all the pre-title sequence, everyone. This is the this is still the uh, God, do let me know when we start this and I'll it. start. This isn't yeah. it yet. Um, it just makes me interested in this this idea of what what is a what is an animated special effect and what is a non-animated yes. special effect. So you mentioned things like rear projection, split screen, uh, I catched a few moments of sort of dissolves yes, or, or yes. face, kind of very sort of early cinema effects here, splicing with the camera, all that kind of stuff. Well, what point would you, as an animation scholar, call one animation and one fantasy? Just because just, this is an audio format, everybody, uh, Chris has just pulled a face of me, which, um, because this is a family-friendly podcast, I can't translate into words, well, if, but, if I but use your imagination. If I remember one of the, the previous podcasts, you asked me a quote-unquote impossible question, <laughs> yeah. and you've trumped yourself there. Yeah. Um, I would say, I mean, film historians, cinema historians, who talk about early film, talk about um, moments of effects. So the word, the word itself, cinema, as being in itself an effect, but obviously the old um, uh, narrative versus spectacle um, negotiation that occurred within within early cinema, and certainly it's no coincidence that those scholars writing about early cinema. Um, and the role of spectacle and special effects are writing at a time in the late 70s, 80s where Hollywood is, is experimenting further with special effects and we're starting to get the rise of computers. So it's one of those things where writing on the cinema of attractions by Tom Gunning and, and work on early cinema is as much about the period in which he is writing as it is the period that he's referring to. So it's really, for, for my money, I have a note as I was watching the film that um, stuff like back projection, matte paintings, dubbing, any kind of superimposition scenes where we are getting the impression that events are either happen happening coexistently or um, to reflect a, a passage of time, a passing of time, when the, a lot of the um, rowing sequences take place, for example, that this, this, to me, these wouldn't be called visual effects in the same way. So I'm sort of, um, what's the word, uh, fudging the answer to your question, but it seems to be around, to, to my mind, visual effects, um, I'm thinking around the 70s and, and 80s, so the, okay. the kind of blockbuster, post-classical blockbuster era of George, uh, George? George. George. Jaws. George the shark and <laughs> yeah. it's very men. I was thinking of Sharky and George when I said Jaws. There we go. Um, Close Encounters. Uh, so st films like that. So I'm, I'm sort of, uh, it's very much a sort of seven, or to my mind, a, a sort of visual effects. VFX is a, a sort of 70s and, and 80s okay. phenomenon. So this is a sort of proto-example of that then? Yeah. So this film is, is early early 60s. Yeah. Though you asked me earlier about my response to the film. It's very, it stands up very well. And some of the, certainly the climactic um, fight sequence um, between Jason, the Argonauts, and this sort of army of skeletons is is incredible, really. Yes, and really, yes. for a film that's made in, in 63, or 62, 63, uh, it's terrific. So, yes, it's this sort of... The, I'm interested in the way that the film articulates its effects, folds 
effects into its narrative. Yeah. The, the effects for us are the effects for the characters, um, and also the coexistence of in quote invisible effects that are in service of elu- we're not supposed to notice that they're standing in front of a, a blue, a, um, uh, I suppose the equivalent of a blue screen or a, a green screen, a, a sort of um, back project back projection. So yeah, I think that's there's two interesting things there, and I'll set up the movie now. Um, and I, I made a lot of notes about how some of the attempts to incorporate the stop motion into the narrative becomes part of the narrative. We can talk about that as we go through the movie. And I'm also very interested in the question of how much we're supposed to notice and how much we're not supposed to notice yes. the effects. I think that's also part of its identity as a fantasy film. But just to sort of give everyone the spiel, if people haven't heard of this movie, uh, Jason the Argonauts is one of the early examples of a series of movies made throughout the 50s, 60s, 70s, and into the early 80s um, by loosely by, by a, a figure named Ray Harryhausen. And he's credited as various different things in these movies, um, often as a producer, as I say, I noted associate producer this time, or a creative director. But essentially he worked in partnership with another a producer called Charles Schneer, uh, Schneer. Uh, and the two of them did various different deals, often with Columbia Studios, throughout the sort of 50s, 60s, 70s, making these kind of monster movies. Um, and these monster movies were made through a process called dynamation, that's at least how they described it, which is a, a not necessarily innovative in terms of its animation style. Um, it's using stop motion, which is a very early uh, animation technology, and it goes right back to things like King Kong. But the blending of that with a sort of process by which um, live action could interact with these characters was very innovative for its time. and. In terms of histories of fantasy, we get a narrative very similar to sort of histories of animation and that a lot of people credit Harryhausen with both being a technical pioneer. He's the guy that invented a way of doing things on screen whereby live action and these sort of monsters made through plasticine could interact with one another. And, and this is perhaps uh, the film that features its his most famous and perhaps his most technically accomplished version of that, which is this massive skeleton fight at the end of the movie, which I'm sure we'll get to. From my perspective, I'm very interested in that quite often Harryhausen, even in histories of fantasy, isn't considered as someone who's particularly interested in the genre in which he is working, in that he's often considered to be a technical pioneer, and actually his influence on fantasy cinema is, is actually his influence on later fantasy filmmakers. So people like Steven Spielberg credit Harryhausen as being a really important influence, and even people like Peter Jackson. Peter Jackson described The Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring, as his Ray Harryhausen movie. Um, and, and the beats of that movie are actually quite similar to something like this um, but actually I, I think I think that's perhaps downplaying his interest in fantasy and fantasy fiction his autobiography is full of discussions of fantasy I think he says in it at one point uh, if it weren't for the genre of fantasy I wouldn't be a filmmaker fantasy is my inspiration mm. and my muse uh, he, he was interested in early stop motion but he was also interested in early comic book artists early uh, versions of fantasy storytelling, early pulp magazines. So I'll be looking at ways in which we can consider him to be interested in the genre whilst evolving at a technical level. I don't see him as just a technician. I see him as someone very much interested in the stories he's telling. So this is a film, and certainly for us, uh, occupies that that middle middle ground between an overlap mm. between fantasy and animation. That Harry Housen is certainly has a foot in in both camps. He mm-hmm is a, uh, a pioneer, of, certainly from an animation historian's perspective, he is a pioneer of particular kinds of um, 
animated effects so this uh, dynamation process that involved is essentially a split screen layered we've talked previously about Disney's multiplane camera um, he's using a certain kind of split screen to give the impression of certain degrees of action and interaction between human elements live action elements and animated elements so he's a pioneer of certain kinds of animated effects uh, and ultimately perhaps used fantasy as an outlet to express that kind of technological artistry yet at the same time he is a fantasy filmmaker in working within those kinds of traditions uh, and the best way the uh, um, a productive way of articulating some of the codes conventions tropes character archetypes within fantasy is to therefore use a particular kind of uh, medium in this case animation and actually in this case stop-motion animation so he is very much a, a, a figure who, who is certainly central to both historical narratives simultaneously rather than one or the other. Um, and actually going through the film, thinking about Jason and the Argonauts, it's really a checklist of, of things that animation can do. So stuff from metamorphosis and, and kind of teleportation, it plays with issues of enlargement, of miniaturization. Um, clearly there is some really intricate model work. There's some nice stuff with, with fire. So it's a really interesting, in terms of the creative language of animation, it's very much um, yeah, pushing at the boundaries of some of the things that the that medium can do. And is it using fantasy to do that, or is it sort of the other way around? Is it both? So yeah. I'm, I think it's yeah, it's a, it's a it's a terrific film to to look at. So well chosen. Yeah, I mean it's almost like we did that on purpose. It is. So, so we should um, we should get going, I guess. So we'll go through the film um, beat by beat. So it starts as I say with this credit for Harry Housen as associate producer. With the, I love I love old movie credit sequences. Mm -hmm. I love a film where nothing happens for five minutes, but we just get some music and lovely fonts. I'm a big font fan. Chris, um, and we get this sort of Bernard Herrmann score playing, which is a massive yes. fan of. Um, it really settles you into the movie. But I also noticed whilst watching the credits, we get images of sort of old Greek pots, old Greek uh, architecture, lots of still images of things. Chris is nodding enthusiastically. I'll stop speaking. Now. No, I'm, I'm, I'm. It's more than enthusiasm. Uh, no, to, to pick up on a couple of things that you said, I noticed. Yeah, the score is terrific, and, and Herman had just come off of working on uh, Psycho and a, and a couple of other Hitchcock movies. So this is a, a very brass-heavy score. Mm -hmm. um, and the other thing I noticed, I've just put that the murals that we see and these sorts of, as you say, still images are to me. Uh, they are, uh, I guess, a precursor, or they kind of, kind of um, come off of the back of the storybook. So the storybook that begins Snow White that we've talked about yeah. previously. Uh, here we've got a different kind of, of visual narration, uh, and then it and perhaps anticipates some of the other um, uses of, of, of Disney when they're using. Because um, I've heard, I've heard you mention before uh, Beauty and the Beast and the way that they use the stained glass window and, and to kind of show this visual narration. Certainly, the fifties itself, fifties and sixties are a time in Hollywood, especially. This is an independent um, movie, but certainly in Hollywood, the fifties and sixties is a time where the title sequence is going bonkers, thanks to Saul Bass, his work on on Hitchcock, uh, and also the, the Bond movies. So title sequences are becoming really interesting spaces, and, and uh, historians of, of Hollywood, so we're thinking of Bordwell, uh, David Bordwell, Kristen Thompson, Janet Steiger, in their book on classical Hollywood, mention that although classical Hollywood is very standardised, it's very sort of um, uh, formulaic in many ways, where we're seeing really um, experimental moments are actually in title sequences. That's where we're allowed to see things that are a bit, bit wacky. So, uh, so yeah, I, I think that the, the film has this really lovely opening, opening sequence that has um, 
that kind of plays out through the credits. Yeah, and it's doing lots of things that because it's 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 foreshadowing what's to come in that this we have these this stillness of images which is foreshadowing the movement, the dynamism that we're about to get. And I think the first 20 minutes, half an hour of the movie struck me. There are so many shots of characters looking at things yes. that we think are about to be animated and are not. I don't know if that's just me projecting onto the movie, but bear in mind that this is a few movies in for Harryhausen. You probably are becoming slightly aware of it. We've got lots of characters looking at statues, looking at images that we think are about to come to life and don't, and yet somehow seem almost animated in the process. Um, so it's, it's foreshadowing what's to come. It's also sort of harking back to this historical, you know, iconography of gods mythology, all this stuff that it is now going to tell on screen. So I think it's doing something very interesting with with the subject matter in, in that moment. And and it sets up this this sort of prologue where we get um, a soothsayer who tells us the story of what's to come. Basically tells us exactly what's about to happen in the movie in that classic sort of Greek chorus manner. We get a soothsayer saying, you know, you will become king, but Jason... It's setting up the myth of Jason and the Argonauts, so I don't think we need to necessarily go too much into the nitty-gritty of it. Um, and, and setting up the, the mythology of this world very nicely. So it becomes a, it's a film about visual storytelling in many ways that shape or form and I think I think I found that quite interesting there's lots of stuff in this movie about characters moving other characters power relationships between gods and humans gods playing humans like little puppets yes of humans with magical gifts playing other humans like little puppets and there's a sort of really interesting relationship between animators on screen and animators off screen yes the last and it actually only really struck me in the final sequence of the, of the film which I won't we kind of won't jump to mm. now um, but I've just written gods as animators question mark yeah. bracket questions of creativity and control that it only really struck me at the end that these are sort of uh, god characters godlike characters who are playing as you say these these human figures like puppets what also struck me about the the film is 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 thinking about our own identity as people interested in fantasy and animation and certainly this approach to thinking about the relationship or the interrelationship between fantasy and animation has made certainly made me feel very reflexive about how, where, and why animation is used in particular kinds of filmmaking contexts, um, and it's almost as if that sort of spectatorial experience is it was seemingly being fed into the film. So, as you say, there are lots of instances where characters are looking, but they are looking at things that we might expect to become uh, animated and become full of life, and, and so that reflexivity that do you want to just give the listeners some examples um well certainly um up until the first moment where they are fight or they they um fight uh, talos of so this big kind of bronze statue mm -hmm. that that immediate bit before i was waiting for all of those bronze statues to come up yeah. to come alive and they're sort of lined up in this and posed as a foe to jason within the in the film itself um and so and there are other moments in there that, for example towards the beginning of the film there's a big statue of hera that I hadn't seen the movie in quite a long time. I was convinced that she was about to stand up. I think I might be confusing it with another Harryhausen movie. Please do write in and tell us or tweet me and remind me which one that is. And I'm sure we'll get to it at some point in uh, 2025 when we're still sitting here. Uh, hopefully it won't be quite as hot then. Yeah, and but, it'll be a different podcast as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're yeah. <laughs> snazzier. Um, so, so... Uh, We'll hit the, so, the, so that so that hero statue. We yes. also get the hero figure mask. Yes, and sh she is sort of animated, but not quite. The eyes move. They yes. look. 
but it's sort of all setting up this moment you're at where the big bronze Telos statue stands up as as the as these other statues stay still. I mean, I'm low. I mean, it, it's very easy to sort of say that the film is about about animation, yeah, but then yeah, at yeah. the same time, as you say, that sort of mast that's pointing the wrong way on the on the boat, looking back rather than looking outwards of, of Hera. There are, oh yeah, obviously moments where she communicates, and it's kind of done through sound design and, and dubbing, uh, and then blinks up the eyes occasionally. So she's animated, but not in the same way. So it's perhaps not that the film is overtly reflexive about animation as a, as, a, as a medium, but it's certainly giving us different registers of creativity, control, um, agency that culminate in the sort of, yeah, four or five sequences where we are seeing, or maybe it's the, it's kind of qualified through fantastical creatures. Like the, 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 the proper animation in the film is reserved for the armory of, of fantasy creatures, the kind of the winged, Thing, yeah, monster, harp, thing. The, um, the multi-headed lizard, snaky yeah. thing, um, the bronze statue that fights and is this kind of giant. So I'm wondering and whether if it's... listeners want to buy the multi-headed lizard, snaky thing T-shirts for this podcast, they're yeah. available on Arsenal. Yeah. They're not really. Um. Um, so I'm wondering, yeah, whether the proper animation is 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 being deliberately delayed or. Um, I don't know. The other issue is that the time, kind of time-consuming nature of, of animation itself. It's, it's can I throw a fantasy uh, love, note at this point? I'd love you to. Because I'm interested in dual agency as well, in that this is also a film about Greek mythology, and it, and it does take license with the mythology, but it doesn't take quite as much license as you might think. It's relatively faithful. Uh, he uses the word relative in a sort of very italicised manner and a very Hollywood manner in the sense that it, it is in at least some way faithful whilst also taking huge diversity. So Medea is in no way like Medea in classical mythology, but but he's, it is there and they, and they have taken some effort to remain faithful. And I'm also interested in the slippage between fantasy storytelling and theological storytelling. So one of the perhaps uh, prototypical examples of fantasy... Um, is um, is the Iliad? Yeah, Homer's Iliad. Mm. It's probably the first story we have written down in Western civilization, and you can argue that it is a fantasy story, and that it is a story about things that do not exist happening. The only complication to that is that obviously it is written during a period whereby whereby the people receiving that literature would have believed in mm. the stuff that's happening. <laughs> Have you come to pray to the gods, Jason? If I had, I wouldn't have chosen a fallen one. Only a statue. Sometimes the gods argue amongst themselves. Then great winds blow and temples fall. Hermes. A bringer of dreams and a prowler of the night. Jason! No man can tell you how to find the fleece. Is it not time you ask the gods? They will not answer those who believe in them. Why should they answer one who doesn't? Oh, sorry, Jason and or his Argonauts. I just wanted to interrupt to talk a little bit about the Fancy Animation Research Network, but in particular an upcoming event that might be of interest to our listeners. Yeah, we're very excited to plug this here. Uh, if you are in the London area or would like to travel to the London area, on Monday the 10th of September at 6.30pm, a 
Chris and I will be doing a talk at the BFI Southbank Cinema. So for those who don't know that, that's the cinema, the lovely Southbank Cinema, right on the front, uh, opposite, I believe, a Wagamama's. Yes. yes. So that's that's also somewhere... tempting. Yeah, a pre-dinner snack and then a post-dinner chat about all things fantasy animation at the BFI Library, where Chris and I will be hosting a talk along with some other contributors to celebrate uh, our book. Fantasy Animation Connections Between Media, Mediums and Genres. More information about the event can be found on the BFI website uh, and we'll also post a little link on the Fantasy Animation website as well. You can also find it on our Twitter feed and Facebook group, so please check that out as well. We hope to see as many of you down there as possible for the talk and perhaps a beer afterwards. If you can't get involved uh, because you live too far away or for whatever reason, another way to participate in the event would be to send us questions in advance. You can do this on our Facebook page or our Twitter page. Uh, simply use the hashtag FANANIM. So that's F-A-N-A-N-I-M. FANANIM. And please make the questions more than where are the places to eat near here. That would be helpful, yes. Let's get back to the show. Basically, I'm interested in this thorny issue between when does a film become, when does a fantasy story become a work of theology? Um, does it have to, if it mentions a character for mythology, does that make it a myth rather than a fantasy and all this kind of stuff? And I think the nice middle ground we might reach is here's the, what I sort of see it as, and a lot of other scholars before me, John um, Calabesque writes about this quite a lot, is uh, is it using the religious iconography to affirm a particular religious worldview? So is it asking us to believe in the gods, or is it using the religious iconography to play with our imaginative sensibility and play with our sense of imagination? And I argue this film is quite firmly doing the latter because it's obviously not set at the same time. So I guess all, the long and the short of it is that I think what's very interesting is the way they use gods here speaks to two types of agency, human agency and some sort of supernatural agency right um, the figure of the supernatural being being a really important figure in all fantasy literature as a character that can do more things be more things will can be dominant over everything so we constantly have this interplay between the will of the gods the power of the gods and the power of humans and that is a key feature of all fantasy literature that is set in a theological mold be it greek myth and legendary or even things like it's a wonderful life and stuff like that i mean for for me it's it's interesting where or the register of the film, the the parts of the film that we're invited to read as, as supernatural. So there's sort of the three the kind of three camps, if you like, or, or there is a tension in the film between three camps. There is the world of, of Jason on Earth, there is the world of the gods up high, and then there is this space in between where the animation exists. Um, and the film is about the interplay between these these three elements. So you have um, Jason on on Earth, who is being confronted by these certain kinds of, of kind of supernatural events, but events that we're deliberately asked and invited to read as f moments of fantasy as impossible. Mm -hmm. um, certainly, so moments. Talk, so, so you're talking when the statue comes alive, yes. when the harpies arrive, when the skeletons rise up from the. Yeah, these okay, are sure. these are in ways. Um, intrusions onto mm -hmm. that world these yeah. are not part of this is not a world where everything can come to life mm -hmm. but at the same time these are 
it just feels to me that these are particular moments that the characters themselves are reading as unusual within the context it, of their own it's space. In, it's intrusive, not immersive, isn't yes. it? It's, it's, oh my God, this is happening. This shouldn't be happening in this world, and if it is, and that's diegetically fed within the narrative. Jason reacts in disbelief. Yes. Yeah, 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 absolutely. So there are moments like that, absolutely. Yes, so I think there's some really... But there are other moments when, for example, Jason encounters Zeus, and we get that really weird moment where sort of Jason is a little yes. figure on, on his chessboard, yes. uh, where... This is much more. It's much more ambiguous, right? In and certainly, it, it feels to me that that's that's. It seems like something that's something that's happened before in that world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That the, there are exceptions. So actually, fantasy becomes a really interesting um, element within the film mm-hmm. that's kind of weaved in and out yeah. to show. I don't. Know, there's two kinds of fantasy. And there's and 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 to riff on that, there's two kinds of animation, right? So there's. There's the, the the most overt examples of the animation are in these intrusive moments. Yes. Whilst the more sort of nebulous special effects that we're invited to read as part of the illusion and, and, and ultimately it's not really effects at all in some mm-hmm, sense mm-hmm. are being connected to uh, events within the film that are qualified actually within the film as not yeah, fantasy yeah, at yeah, all. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, Jason's allowed to talk to Zeus in this world because that that. It, that fits the internal logic of this world. Yes. It fits the internal logic of this world that if you pray to Hera, she speaks back to you. Yes. But it doesn't fit the internal logic of this world if the, the statue comes to life or if the, if the skeletons rise mm. on the ground. And that's very interesting. I hadn't thought about this until with this, this moment, but, but it's interesting. They're, tell, they're using different visual methods yeah. to, to depict that on screen. So I've got, as a, as a sort of... The, the, ta- the Talos statue, the bronze statue, yeah. comes to life after about 20... 25 minutes, something like that. Yeah, I, I'll, I haven't done the plot, but I'll do it in a sentence. So Jason's got to get the Golden Fleece. He goes through a bunch of challenges to get it. He gets it. End. That's, I mean, that's, that's, that's the beats done, right? Yes. And what we get sort of is a various, very episodic set of situations. You go, they go from island to island, situation to situation, where different things are told. So the Telos moment we keep mentioning is on the sort of, they've stopped for water and then... Uh, then Hercules, I really want to talk about Hercules. Yes. I love, every time I watch this movie, I forget that Hercules is in it. And I, lo- I have no idea who plays him. I'm going to find out, actually. Um, but it is a mixture between the sort of love child of Brian Blessed and uh, Charles Dance. It's sort right. Of this, you know, it's that 60s masculinity that just means hairy and uh, kind of like your slightly pervy uncle. I will refer you to my tanned and sweaty comment earlier. Um, <laughs> now, what I was going to say is that yeah. the, if the, the Talos statue moment is 20, 25 minutes into yeah. the film, it's up until that point, we've had sort of invisible effects. So we've had um, moments of, of um, enlargement and miniaturization. We've had examples where we're supposed to be seeing metamorphosis. We're supposed to be seeing kind of teleportation and, the, and certainly some of the rules of the, the, rules of the world. 30 minutes in or so, this is the moment that we've sort of, this is payoff number one. Um, and the scene is set to, it's obviously the whole film is set up as a, as a journey narrative, an extended journey narrative. And that allows the film to quite episodically structure a series of set, set pieces around certain kinds of animated sequences. So uh, yeah, there are a handful of, of scenes and, and sequences in the film that are kind of, they're, they're the um, charge comes from they are structured around the uh, moment of wonder connected to certain kinds of effects. So the, the Talos statue that starts to begin t- to, to move, it climbs um, up from its, its pl- plinth, it picks up the boat. These are moments that are framed as unusual and spectacular within, within the film itself. And for us, part of that spectacle comes from uh, the animated artifact coexisting within the same shot 
and seemingly having a degree of consequence and impact on the live action footage. So that's really why I thought that the, the animated effects were, were terrific. I, I felt coexistence. I didn't feel a, a kind of rupture between the live action and animated elements. There was some really nice um, interplay. It was it was King Kong grabbing Fay Ray all over again yeah, and yeah, feeling yeah. her in her in his hand. I think that's a really striking bit, the tell-off sequence. And I think it's something yeah. to do with the stillness of it and the build-up to it and the fact that it sort of slowly builds out of this statue. You see it still for a very long time and then it moves very gradually. There's something about that sequence is really, really striking. But isn't it important then that one of the key or most significant elements of the film's animation is its use of non-animation or de-animation. So it would feel different if the statue or the statue was already sentient when it yeah. encountered Jason. It's really important that the characters and also us. So it, you know, yeah, Toy, yeah, Toy yeah. Story is the same principle. If the toys just began the film and they were talking, and yeah. then it doesn't have that same. It's really important that the illusion of life element of, of animation is is itself made a spectacle of. We are seeing things come to life and, and it is really important that the the statue is first seen in its original proper form yeah. before it come comes to life. And it's important for, I mean actually that's really because I think there's basically sort of three big set pieces yes. in and I think the by far the least successful is that middle one involving the harpies thing, these sort of winged creatures. Yes. And, and you're right, that one starts with them already existence. Yes. There is no moment where they are animated on screen, they come to life on screen. But I guess that process of animation it, it does two things, doesn't it? One, it spectacularises the technology. Yes. And I think if you read reviews at the time, a lot of people are very aware of this technology. They are very aware that that's the point of the movie. They describe watching it as very sort of dreamlike, a very strange kind of experience. So there is a certain, you know, spectacularization of the experience of watching it. And I think also in terms of the fantasy, it um, it, it 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 animates that that relationship between gods and men, that relationship between the natural and the supernatural, and the intrusive and the immersive. Right. Yes. The, the, the intrusive moments are when things are presented diegetically as not animated and then made to be animated. So we're saying that the kind of winged harpy that can fly are are creatures of that world, as opposed to the the statue who has been created to be sentient within that Certainly, world. I'm not sure if that's how it's meant to be in the narrative, but that's how it feels yes. watching it. it. They feel very normal and actually yes. very unconvincing. Not that they're necessarily meant to be convincing, but they feel just very inert on screen, those things. They look like mm. plasticine blobs to me, um, and they don't seem that successfully integrated within the characters. Yes. Whilst the other monsters, the Hydra, the Skeleton Army, Telos, they all work for me quite well. Yes. No, I think the, 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 the success of the film, because it's very difficult, certainly within a more contemporary digital context, to uh, create a sense of weight and volume. You know, digital images have no volume, they have no weight. Yeah. And so to try and, um, to try and think about how you represent volume and solidity and how do we know a character is strong. Um, and w watching this, and I wonder whether this comes from the stop motion element, there was a real sense of materiality. So when that bronze statue raises and starts kind of marching, and, and there was a real consequence to when he puts his foot down and kind of squashes these, yeah. these human characters. So there was a real, I get a real sense of, of, of volume and, and materiality, and I'm wondering, within the character, and I'm wondering whether that is a function of its that stop, mo that stop motion is a very particular kind of frame-by-frame -frame animation. Previously we've talked about um, forms of, of cell animation, uh, but the stop motion element to the film is really important to give that solidity to um, the animated components, and it's really that 
that three-dimensionality, that, that stop motion exists, the objects of stop motion exist in front of the camera. It's only through the special powers of the medium that they come to life. They still they exist as, as sort of um, objects to touch and hold. So yeah, I've got a real sense of their, their volume and that helps. This is a film I feel that could only be done in, in stop motion. It would feel very different and almost inconsequential um, were it to be remake now with, well with the, the the remake of Crash of the Titan, Titans might yes. speak to this and that yeah. people who went on about how it was a rubbish story and naff and really badly acted well the original one has all that all those problems going on as well um, but and and so does this film I mean the, the acting is atrocious from start to finish um, the lead actor playing Jason um, his name escapes me um, by the way anyone interested the person that who plays uh Hercules, his name is Nigel Green, and he died 10 years later at the age of 47, so this podcast is dedicated to him. And he was also the captain in Zulu. Have you seen Zulu? I have. Well, going back to an earlier comment about films I haven't seen, of course I haven't seen seen Zulu. Zulu. Carry on. That would be a tenuous link to do for this podcast, but I'll try and crowbar it in, guys, because I love Zulu very much. Um, But the main character um, is uh, Todd Armstrong, who I don't know what else he went on to, dubbed by someone else, uh, by Tim Turner. I don't know who that is, but he's terrific. Um, What else has he done? He has done uh, uh, films as good as The Rat King, Sculplock, The Iron Horse, A Time for Killing. And thankfully, Hawaii Five-O. And a couple of us Hawaii Five-O. Terrific. So, yeah, it's it's not great acting. Um, It's not great characterisation. I tell you, the the best bit of... Of, of acting, the best, the 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 best bits of the film. I for really me, hope I, uh, you're going to say what I think you're going to say. Are the moments where they're interacting with the animation for me? Yeah. The, oh yeah. Bits, sure. Uh, that obviously wasn't what you were no, going to say. No, what you used to say on a Blackman, but oh, that, that but that's for other reasons. Um, but no, I think that the 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 bits where the human element is the strongest is when we're seeing the fight sequences uh, and the sense of conflict and, and confrontation with these animated components. Because yeah. I think yeah, the layering of the live action and, and animated elements or artifacts in the film are are really successful and actually they, they need to be successful uh, to get to use the sort of King Kong analogy again uh, the stakes of the film are much more significant or raised if we know Fay Ray is, is within the hand of, of, yeah. of an animal and so we really need to there needs to be a sense of jeopardy and, and actually the, 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 the role of the animation was successful enough to sustain mm-hmm. The jeopardy of the of the film, which is is why that climactic set piece is so effective. Absolutely, yeah, I agree. I think I, it comes to life in those moments, doesn't it? And that's what we're all waiting for. And that's and that's yeah. Basically, the film knows that it's structured in such a way as to get on to the next. Once the sort of we get the first half an hour of build up, and then yes. it, then it's just set piece after set piece after set piece. That, that are being these are set pieces, as I said, that are organised around. Um, Moments, moments of animation. So yeah. we have the statue, we have these winged creatures. Yeah. Then we have this snake. Oh yeah, so let's talk dragon. about the Hydra. The Hydra sort of yes. dragony thing sequence, right? So this is the, it's it's the guardian of the golden fleece. Jason's sort of reached the end of his quest at this point. He's being pursued by an army, and he comes across this this snake monster thing, many-headed yes. creature. Uh, Anything strike you in particular about that sequence? Yes, it was the. Um, I'm so glad you asked me that. There, it, I mean, it's a great. I'm so glad I asked it because I was struggling to think of something. No, no. So, um, um, so strap in. Yeah. So um, yes, this is a this is a, a kind of terrifically uh, shot and um, very tense scene. I think, um, and really, is the culmination in terms of the narrative that this yeah. is this is the, the end of their journey, if not the end of the the, the film, as we'll find out. Um, it is the moment where Jason himself becomes an animated figure. 
So yes. I found that really interesting that we have, uh, this is the moment where if, as Jason is, is sort of fighting this, this strange multi-headed serpent type thing, um, at one point the serpent grabs him by the tail and he becomes an animated figure. Um, and and literally, literally, like literally he's a stop mode. He becomes yes. a stop because obviously he's having to be held in the claws of this character. Yeah. So we have close-ups of him as a human actor, if you like, being held within this this tail as he fights fights it off. Uh, and But then the longer shots have the whole scene as, as animated. So for that brief moment it becomes animation in, in its entirety so yes it's, the, it's the, the first moment and the only moment I think in the film where Jason becomes equally as animated as the creatures the, the, you know this is the, hu the moment of human fantasy if you like yeah um, absolutely yeah, there's another moment where another uh, an antagonist is, is also animated in the same in the same sequence actually right um, and, but I think you're right and Harryhausen would play with that a little bit more Clash of the Titans we'll get to at some point but Clash of the Titans has a, has a character in it that constantly goes back and forth between being animated and being live action, depending on if you get a close up or if you get a full body shot, you get a, an actor playing them versus a uh, a dynamated monster. So does that complicate the sort of assumption, or certainly my my knowledge of Harryhausen is that these are these are movies, and then the fantasy elements are the creatures, the fanta fantastical, um, strange, otherworldly, not possible creatures. That's really interesting. That that actually. A moment in a Harry Hasm film that is animated is, is not fantasy in the same way that we, the fantasy is not being or the animation is not being reserved for fantastical creatures is also being given yeah. over to the to the human characters as well. Yeah, I think I guess I, I guess you're right. Yeah, that is often how the story is told, isn't it? You sort of get the it's it's a, a, a monster movie yes. series of monsters, which is true. But actually, you know, I don't think this is a fantasy. I don't think it starts becoming a fantasy when Telos starts standing up. It's a fantasy from the outset. It's a mythological yes. um, fantasy. So is that what the the opening title sequence then does? It establishes the narrative, but it establishes the genre. Establishes the world as well, yeah. right? This is a world of Greek myth and legend. Yeah. Uh, we're going to play with that world, and you know, throughout these twenty minutes, we're not getting animated sequences, but we're getting gods interacting with men, uh, gods performing miracles, people. Performing prophecies, we, we, it's, it, but I think the, the rhetoric—the only difference is the rhetoric is different. It's, yes, it's immersive rather than intrusive. We can yeah. going back to these these distinctions because they're really really helpful. Uh, thank you to Farrah Mendelssohn for inventing them. They're, yes. they're sort of helpful ways of, of of clarifying what the different kinds of fantasy rhetoric are going on. So it's when it's intrusive that it becomes animated. Yes, but I think Harryhausen and 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 the other thing I would just briefly say is that Harryhausen isn't the director on this, although he basically is in that. Uh, he's involved in the script process. He is driving it. I think, depending on which account you read, it's slightly different. But quite often, he would develop the monsters and they'd fit them into the script, or he'd read a basic outline of the script and then develop monsters in response to that. He would often direct the live-action performance of the animated sequences. So, if if the shots, the live-action shots of them fighting thin air, he would have directed because both on a technical level. Well, on a technical level, he needs to so he can fit the dynamation into it and around it. He knows where they need to stand, all this kind of stuff. But but I, I wonder if he's not getting getting enough sort of artistic credit in that. And that I also think there's a spirit of of a particular lens or type of fantasy that he's doing that a lot of filmmakers aren't doing at this time. We're talking about intrusive. It's really interesting. 1950s, 1960s Hollywood is the period of intrusive fantasies. Not all of them, but most mainstream fantasies that are being made in Hollywood are intrusive fantasies. So, 
Bedknobs and Broomsticks, Mary Poppins, uh, these kind of movies are being made where real life, primary world fantasies where an intrusive element comes in. And th- what these films are doing is using that same rhetoric but within an already fantasy world. Yes. And they're doing it to speak to a much more marginal youth audience that are raised on sort of B-movie serials and they're still operating within the... With the, the you know, these, this isn't blockbuster filmmaking here. This is minor... Uh, low budget studio uh, outside studio interference filmmaking but isn't it interesting that to go back to something you said about uh, Harry Housen and the, the different um, views and, and questionable um, accounts of his role and did he write or conduct yeah. the animation to fit fan it seems like that, that fantasy animation has has this sort of necessary set of discourses that surround it the way that the Harry Housen's input in the film seems to be framed is very similar to this sort of going back to, to early film history and, and figures like George Melies and and he very famously said that he considers kind of the narrative event uh, uh, is inconsequential for him he's kind of constructing the the effects first and then building a narrative out of that whereas you could flip it on its head and said the narrative was conceived first and then the effects were used to fit that. so it seems like fantasy animation has these almost a requisite set of discourses about which came first um, which was being made to fit the other thing, yeah. um, and so it's, it seems like the, these sorts of debates are are happening within the context of Harryhausen. Did he is he the animator that gave an outlet to fantasy expression, or is he somebody who is being given a a, a fantasy script and then yeah. trying to find ways of articulating that on screen? I guess the third way you can offer from that is that we often think of this dichotomy, and I say we, literally me and you, when we've had previous conversations about this, often think of this dichotomy between animation and fantasy as a relationship between effect and narrative. Yes. The narrative is the is the sort of engine, the what, which one is the power, all this kind of stuff. I don't think this film's that interested in narrative. Um, no. I, but I do think it's interested in fantasy. So I guess the third way is that why don't we why don't we think of and we as scholars think of devising a new trick for a movie as a moment of fantasy creativity? Designing a monster is an act of fantasy, is it yes. not? It's not an act of a technician necessarily. It is a technical act, but it's not just an act of craftsmanship. It's an act of an imagination. You have to design a monster. That's an act of a that's the same thing as kids drawing yes. pictures in their notebooks. It's the, it's the I mean that's what why a lot of kids want to become animators is this idea of drawing pictures but what they're drawing is an expression of their own imagination it's not an expression of their own relationship with clay yes Uh, so I to me think that the third grandmother he is an an animator that brings to life moments of fantasy through stop motion do we have anything else to say about the skeleton sequence because I feel we haven't talked about it and that's pretty much the reason we picked this movie yes so I um, was have sort of had sort of been waiting for this this moment this sort of three minute that probably took months years to produce but is this sort of simply because I I I'd seen it but in other contexts so I'd seen it um, I felt like I'd seen it in uh, Tim Burton I felt like and he's very influenced by uh, Harry Housen and. Tim Burton's video that he directed for for the Killers um, for their song Bones is a tribute to this to this um, climactic sequence. So this fight between Jason um, and his pirates, as they are called in the film, uh, and these sort of sentient skeletons is really framed visually, formally, aesthetically, stylistically um, as a as a confrontation with animation. So 
the the seeds the teeth are planted in the ground yeah. and ultimately these skeletons appear but they appear front on so we have this really interesting tableau that is suddenly being populated it is disney's skeleton dance all over again and they appear um fill the screen from left to right and then you have quite an extended sort of two minute sequence where it's just a fight sequence it's just a fight sequence between the pirates between jason um it made me laugh that a skeleton had the ability to be stabbed in the chest and die. Um, that that made <laughs> me literally never thought about that and drown as well. Or, by the way, by the way, and you've just you've did that strike one. On, I'm going to keep record on this podcast. Strike one, everybody, write that down. Um, it, you know, it, it. God, the bit where the skeleton stood up was fine, but the bit where we stabbed him and it fell down. That's it made no sense yes. then. You know, it was biologically. <laughs> Internal rules are really important. Biologically inconsistent. <laughs> Um, so yes, and again, I think it's 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 deliberately framed as a supernatural um, moment of fantasy within the film. This is not something. This is this is conjured by magic and prompts wonder. Um, and so yeah, I thought it was a really terrific way to to end the end the film. It plays with issues of of obviously creativity and control, as, as we've said, and and anticipates the I guess the the um, uh, epilogue to the film where where it's. It's about the gods, and they reflect on the, the the effectively the film that they've just seen, the film that they've just authored in some senses. Yeah. Um, and so, as I said, this is a fantasy event where we are seeing a kind of conflict between live action and animation, life and death, um, two forms of sentience. It's again, it's it's violent. A couple of the the, the characters do do perish, um, but ultimately, apparently, and who knew that skeletons could drown? Well, quite quite. I think on skeletons can drown though seems like a good point to uh, to conclude this discussion yes. for today. Um, so, Chris, thank you very much for uh, trekking through Jason, Jason and the Argonauts. Uh, perhaps we'll get round for another Harryhausen um, further down the line. But uh, thank you for popping your Harryhausen cherry with me. Thank you, um, thank you very, thank you very much for putting it. Well, one for introducing me to Harryhausen in that sense, but also putting it in that delightful way. <laughs> Um, and we'll be back next time on the Fantasy Animation Podcast. Uh, until then, take care. Thank you. Bye. Bye.